Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott Sherman. I'm a physician in New York City at New York University, and I run one of the directors of the Public Health Research Center here at NYU Abu Dhabi. I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's public lecture, which is Doha as an Emerging Epidemic, What Can We Learn from Global Tobacco Control? This ti the timing of this is uh, in conjunction with a conference that we're having for a day and a half. We've put together the world's experts on Doha and many of the world's experts on water pipe tobacco, and we're all sitting around a room talking about it. Uh, you might wonder why in a lecture on Doha, which I think almost everybody in the room knows something about, we've been spending time thinking about water pipe, and that's what you're going to hear about tonight. And it's because it, there is so little science about Doha that if we were to talk about all that we know, know this much, the observation we made this morning was that across around the 30 people in this room, uh, we had probably authors from a third of all the water pipe papers in the world. There's maybe 400,000 papers on cigarettes right now, probably four or 500 papers on water pipe. And there were, we had about a third of those, probably one of the authors was in the room. But for Doha, we had uh, probably 90% of the papers, there was an author in the room and some of them, all the authors were in the room. Why is that the case? Because there's only 12 or 13 papers out there. So if that, this was a rare product, a rare health risk, we wouldn't care all that much. 12 papers isn't such a big deal. But from the Wakaya project, from the work we're doing at NYU Abu Dhabi, from the work that's done all across the UAE, we know that this is a common product. Uh, if I were to ask here how many people uh, know someone who smokes who, who smokes or has smoked Doha, I think just about every hand in the room would go up. When we've done, when in our cohort study, the UAE Healthy Future study, the prevalence of cigarette smoking among men was the highest, but Doha wasn't too far behind and it was well above shisha. So this is a common product with very little known about it. And I think that we're going to hear two really outstanding talks about water pipe because one of the reasons why we're all spending this day and a half is the thought that, you know, here's our chance to start at the beginning. We see this as a common and dangerous trend. How can we make sure that we answer the science as quickly and as expeditiously as possible? So what we're gonna to hear tonight is two talks on water pipe. Each will be about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, that sort of range. Uh, we have two panel discussants, uh, one from the UAE, one from outside the UAE, and each will talk for about five minutes sharing their experience in this area. And then we'll take questions from the audience. So first I'd like to introduce Dr. Tom Eisenberg, who's a professor uh, in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he runs one of the large centers in the United States on 
funded by the Food and Drug Administration as part of tobacco regulatory science is, is the Center for Study of Tobacco Products. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Scott, for the introduction and for inviting me here. It's great to be back at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a, a process we went through to use a transdisciplinary approach to understand tobacco product effects. I'm going to focus on water pipe, as Scott said, but the idea is that I think we could use the same approach to learn a lot more about uh, doha or medwalk smoking. Uh, first, just to get some things out of the way, I don't have any relevant financial interest to disclose. And uh, as Scott said, I'm funded by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the National Institutes of Health. I think in a way it's kind of uh, unfortunate that I'm the one here speaking about this topic because there are a great many uh, extremely qualified scientists in the Arab world who could give this exact same talk and who I've been working with and who have been doing this work on their own or in conjunction with other Arab world scientists. So there's uh, Dr. Al-Zubi and Dr. Kabor, Jordan University of Science and Technology, Dr. Maziak from the Syrian Center for Tobacco Studies, who's now at Florida International University, Dr. Saliba and Shihade, who are at American University in Beirut, and many others whose work you're gonna see today. I also wanted to acknowledge the VCU students and staff who have been working with me. Um, now I know from long experience that listening to me give a talk is extremely boring, and so most of you are probably going to zoom zone out after a couple of minutes. So what I'd like to do is to start with the conclusion, so that if you listen to nothing else, you at least get this slide. Uh, what I want to describe for you today is that the rapid progress we've made in understanding the effects of tobacco smoking using a, using a water pipe, or hookah, nargila, argila, shisha, uh, is due to a transdisciplinary approach that brought together investigators from different disciplines to first understand each other so that then they could jointly address a common problem. And I think the introduction Scott gave is really important because about 10 to 15 years ago, we were more or less where we are today with Medwalk with water pipe. That is, we really had very little well-controlled science to help us understand the effects of water pipe. Uh, and, and over the last decade, by working together to bring, bring uh, different disciplines to bear, we've been able to learn a great deal, as I think you'll see. And when I say, when I say different disciplines, I'm talking about analytical chemists, engineers, epidemiologists, pharmacologists, physicians, psychologists like me, uh, and public health scientists, a whole bunch of people learning to speak the same language and then apply their science to this new problem. Uh, the other thing I want to, uh, the, the point I want to make is that to understand the effects of any tobacco product about which we know very little, like Medwalk, we should use a similar transdisciplinary approach. So first of all, back about 10 to 15 years ago, we faced a common product uh, problem, and that is that water pipe use was increasing in the Arab world and indeed across the globe. Now, a lot of these data were from that period, and it shows uh, that kids as young as 13 to 15 years old across countries in the Arab world uh, are smoking uh, tobacco in a water pipe. And in fact, by around uh, 2005 or so, this water pipe epidemic spread to the United States, to Europe, pretty much all across the globe. And so that's why we got really interested in it. We found out that it was common in the Arab world. We really didn't know much about it. It was starting to spread. There was a, a really great need to learn more. So we asked a bunch of questions about water pipe that you could also ask about Medwalk. Uh, what is the product? What is this tobacco that they're smoking? Uh, what is uh, the pipe itself, the argile, that they're smoking it in? How do they use the product? 
Uh, what are people uh, receiving? That is, what are they inhaling when you smoke a water pipe? Uh, and then what are the health effects of the product? Um, I, I was kind of new to this. I guess I first became familiar with Nagila uh, around 2001 or 2002 when I joined the Syrian Center for Tobacco Studies. Uh, and so I very quickly learned uh, what a water pipe is. I'm sure you all know. Um, the key features are that there's tobacco placed in a head. It's heated by charcoal. The user inhales on a mouthpiece that draws the charcoal smoke, which is now mixed with tobacco smoke through water, up the uh, uh, hose into the mouthpiece and then into the user's lungs. The tobacco, of course, as you well know these days, is uh, moassal, so it's sweetened, it's uh, flavored, and it's so moist that it won't burn by itself, which is why you have to have an alternate heat source to charcoal in order to make it work. It goes by many different names. I tend to just call it water pipe because that allows me to speak to different audiences. So I quickly learned, in other words, that a water pipe is not a cigarette. It's different tobacco, it's got a different heat source, the smoke passes through water, and because the smoke passes through water, there's this idea that it's less harmful, that it doesn't cause nicotine dependence or tobacco dependence, and that it doesn't cause the same death and disease that cigarette does. Some of that um, idea about it being less harmful, it actually comes from the label. Uh, so you can see here that uh, there's this supposedly very low level of nicotine, 0.05%, and no tar. A lot of people know tar and cigarette smoke is what causes the disease. And you can see similar labeling with a slightly different nicotine content uh, on this other package. So if water pipe uh, is not a cigarette, are water pipe smokers like cigarette smokers? Um, I think that's important. I'm a psychologist. I understand behavior. And so one of the things I like to do is understand how people use a cigarette. How big are the puffs that they, they take? How many puffs do they take when they smoke a cigarette? How much smoke do they inhale into their lungs when they smoke a cigarette? Uh, and so we use this uh, device that you see here, uh, this little box right there that uh, is connected actually to the cigarette. And it measures all of these variables, which we call collectively puff topography. Uh, it was very clear quickly that that device wouldn't work for a water pipe. And this is one of the great uh, things about working with a transdisciplinary group. Once the engineering team led by Dr. Alan Shihade uh, and, and I came to an understanding that we really needed to, to, to learn more about water pipe use behavior, he invented a technique to measure it. Uh, and so that's what this is. Uh, we have pretty much the same kind of device you see over here, but now it's integrated into the water pipe hose. There's a computer attached to it, and it can tell us how people smoke a water pipe. And we quickly learned, and I have to admit we were stunned to find out, that there are extraordinary differences between water pipe smoking behavior and cigarette smoking behavior. So a cigarette, uh, you can take as many as around 16 puffs for a cigarette. Uh, in a 40, that's a, it takes about five minutes to do that. In a 45 minute water pipe use episode, people will take around 85 puffs. For a cigarette, uh, around 71 milliliters per puff, that's actually large. Uh, it's, uh, the average is around 50, but in this particular study, it was 71. Uh, the puff volume for a water pipe, a single water pipe puff, is 833 milliliters, so way bigger puffs. That's in part because the water cools the smoke. That's about all it does. It cools the smoke, and also because a water pipe has a very low draw resistance relative to a cigarette. It's easy to inhale that much when you're smoking a water pipe. And in fact, the total volume from that, uh, that water pipe smoking episode, I lost the little red thing, but um, is uh, 50 liters of smoke compared to about one liter of smoke for when uh, you're smoking a cigarette. So way more smoke is inhaled. Um, 
Another thing we were interested in is, well, what's in the smoke when they inhale it? And one of the things I like to do, again, as a psychologist, is say, well, what's in the smoker? That's really what's important to me. And one of the first things I was interested in, in nicotine was nicotine. And so here you're looking at blood nicotine levels. So we actually took blood samples from people uh, while they smoked a cigarette and while they smoked a water pipe. These are actually the same people. On one day, they smoked a cigarette. On another day, they smoked a water pipe. And what I hope you can see, I still can't see that. There it is. Uh, well, what I hope you can see is that uh, the cigarette, which is the triangle, the blood nicotine levels go up to around, from, from very low levels, to around 10 nanograms per ml after the cigarette is smoked. It only takes about five minutes to smoke a cigarette. They don't smoke anymore for the rest of the session, so then it starts to go down. For the water pipe, after five minutes, you see a significant increase. It starts to go up, but it's not at a cigarette-like level after only five minutes. It continues to climb during the rest of the 45-minute smoking episode. Such, such that by the end of that period, they're getting just as much nicotine from a, a water pipe as they are from a cigarette. The next question I had was, well, okay, they're getting a lot of nicotine, but it, does it do anything to these smokers? And so here uh, we used a, a, a placebo, a, a water pipe preparation that is not made out of tobacco. If you're familiar with the brand names, it's called Soex. Um, and we compared the heart rate effects of smoking this non-tobacco preparation with a normal moassal tobacco, tobacco preparation. You see plasma nicotine levels on the left. Again, the plasma nicotine levels go up when they're using the active product, but not when they're placebo because there's no tobacco, no nicotine. But on the right-hand side, you see that the nicotine increases that are uh, present in the active condition also cause heart rate increases. So yes, they're getting nicotine in, and it's doing something to them, it's elevating their heart rate, that a placebo does not. So it's clearly the nicotine that's causing that heart rate increase. Now, why do I care about nicotine? Because, of course, nicotine is what uh, people become addicted to when they smoke cigarettes. And as it turns out, we've learned over the last decade, uh, culminating in a study that was published just this month, that water pipe smokers also become dependent. So nicotine is a dependence-producing drug. It's in the tobacco of a water pipe. It's in the smoke of a water pipe. And it's in the user who uses a water pipe. We've recorded over the last 10 years that water pipe users will sometimes report a compulsion to use a water pipe. They find it difficult to stop. Uh, if they try to quit, they uh, find it difficult to do so. They have a preoccupation with use, which you can sometimes see if uh, you're trying to go to a restaurant and somebody who's a water pipe smoker will say, well, we can't go to that one because I can't get a water pipe there. We need to go over here. Or maybe if they're going traveling, they pack their travel water pipe to make sure that it's always around with them. Uh, this most recent study looked at uh, kids who use water pipe. This is in Lebanon. It's part of the uh, water pipe dependence in Lebanese youth study. These are in eighth, eighth and ninth grade. And the results were that the, uh, even amongst these youth who use water pipe, uh, the proportion of participants who endorsed uh, dependent symptoms and the average number of symptoms that they endorsed increased with increasing water pipe use frequency, the number of water pipe smoked, and the length of the smoking session. All of these are indicators of dependence. Now, moving away from nicotine, we are also concerned that people who use a water pipe inhale other dangerous toxicants. And probably the one of the most dangerous, at least in the short term, is carbon monoxide. Uh, carbon monoxide is a poisonous gas. Uh, if you uh, have as much as 9% of your hemoglobin, which is supposed to be binding oxygen, bound with carbon monoxide, um, then you can start to feel uh, carbon monoxide intoxication, nausea, fainting, dizziness, uh, and eventually, if you continue to inhale carbon monoxide, you'll die. Uh, this is, again, from the same study with the nicotine that I showed you uh, for a cigarette and a water pipe. The, the 
carboxyhemoglobin, that is the percent of your hemoglobin that's bound to carbon monoxide, goes up a little when you smoke a single cigarette. It goes up rapidly when you smoke a water pipe such that at five minutes it's already at 2%. It continues to climb during the rest of the water pipe smoking session. Only around, uh, the, it, it was way bigger than a cigarette, but uh, we saw levels of only around 4% uh, in this case. Uh, around 4% in the placebo versus active condition, which highlights an important point. Although the placebo water pipe preparation doesn't give you nicotine, it gives you all the other poisons that are associated with uh, water pipe smoking. And that's, of course, because you're inhaling charcoal smoke, whether you're smoking tobacco or not tobacco. And it's charcoal that's responsible for this carbon monoxide production. In fact, there seems to be a growing epidemic of carbon monoxide intoxication in water pipe smokers. Um, We've seen uh, case reports of people fainting in the USA from using water pipe, uh, in Turkey, in England, uh, in Italy, in Singapore. And if you look at some of those carbo carboxyhemoglobin percentages, they're uh, well above the poison uh, level. 31% in Turkey, 24% uh, in Italy, 28% in Singapore. And that's just the acute effects of carbon monoxide intoxication. If you continue to inhale carbon monoxide over the course of your life, as a cigarette smoker does, you become highly at risk for cardiovascular disease, which actually kills more, people in the, more cigarette smokers in the United States than cancer does. So what about tar? Tar is where all the, all the poisons of, of uh, cigarette smoke are, and the labeling of a water pipe indicates that it has 0% tar. That's actually true if you think about the, the tobacco in the box, because tar is a smoke constituent. It's not a tobacco constituent. But as soon as you start producing smoke, it turns out there's a heck of a lot of tar in water pipe smoke. So this, these are uh, generated by Dr. Shahade and his team at the American University of Beirut. A machine smoked a water pipe and smoked a cigarette, uh, and uh, consistent with the human data, there was a little bit more nicotine in the water pipe than there was in the cigarette. There was way more carbon monoxide uh, in the water pipe than in the cigarette, and there was 36 times the tar in the water pipe use episode relative to the cigarette. And you might say, well, maybe that's not such a big deal. Maybe the tar is different than cigarette tar. Maybe it's not poisonous, but you would be wrong. Um, Dr. Saliba, whoops, what did I do there? I don't know how to make that go away. There we go. Uh, Dr. Saliva at American University of Beirut has analyzed the water pipe smoke and demonstrated that many of the same poisons that are in cigarette smoke are also in water pipe smoke. I can't pronounce a lot of the names you see here, so don't worry about that so much. The column heading is the important thing. These are known or suspected carcinogens. That, are the, that is, we know them to cause cancer, or we think they cause cancer. Um, and then the other thing that's important is the far column that says ratio. That's the ratio of how much each of these carcinogens there was in the water pipe smoke compared to the cigarette smoke. It's never less than one. It's always greater than one, meaning there's always more in water pipe than there was in cigarette. And in some cases, it's way more, 50 times more, uh, uh, 245 times more, 24 times more. There's always more of uh, these, these carcinogens, these are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and water, water pipe smoke than there is in cigarette smoke. The same is true for volatile aldehydes, which are known to cause lung disease. Formaldehyde actually causes both lung disease and cancer, so it's doubly bad. Um, acetylaldehyde causes lung disease. Again, if you look at the ratio, there's more of this in water pipe smoke than there is in cigarette smoke. 
And you might say, well, this is machine-smoked stuff, and that's a machine isn't a human, so it's probably different for a human. And this is, again, one of the great advantages of doing transdisciplinary work. We thought the same thing. And so what we did was I had water pipe smokers come into my lab in Richmond, Virginia. They smoked a water pipe. We measured their smoking behavior. And then I emailed that measurement, the smoking behavior measurement, as though it were just like a digital record of somebody's behavior. I emailed it to Dr. Shihade. He has a machine that plays back exactly what the human did. And so we sent him the tobacco they used. We sent him the charcoal they used. He replayed their smoking session. And what we found was there was a very tight correlation between how much carbon monoxide there is in the smoke and how much carbon monoxide there was in the human and how much nicotine there was in the smoke and how much nicotine there was in the human. So in other words, if it's in the smoke, it's also in the person. We've demonstrated there are poisons in the smoke. Those poisons are getting to the people. If you weren't convinced by that, there's some recent data out of uh, California that shows that uh, this is a, a, a biomarker of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, those known and, and suspected carcinogens. Uh, it's called one hop and it's in, uh, it can be found in people's urine. These people who are water pipe smokers and cigarette smokers were, stayed in a hospital for several days. During one of this period of several days, they were given a water pipe to smoke. Another time they were given cigarettes to smoke. And what you see is the water pipe, which the dashed lines, they had actually higher levels of this metabolite of these uh, known or suspected carcinogens, higher levels in the urine than when they were smoking cigarettes. Dr. Maziak has shown from uh, Aleppo that water pipe smokers have higher levels of a metabolite of tobacco-specific nitrosamines in their urine. Those are known potent lung carcinogens. Uh, now, there's less than there was in the cigarette, uh, but still much more than if you're a non-smoker. Doctors Kabor and Al-Zubi from um, Jordan University of Science and Technology have exposed mice to cigarette smoke or water pipe smoke and measured evidence of inflammation or oxidative stress in their lungs and found out that water pipe smoke and cigarette smoke cause similar levels of injury in these mice. From Lebanon, the Lebanese University, we have a study of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. If you look uh, to the far left, if you're a never smoker, you suffer very low rates of COPD, around 3%. If you're a cigarette smoker, that's, that rate is elevated by uh, five times to around 16%. If you're a water pipe smoker, it's doubled, so there is an increased risk of uh, COPD if you smoke water pipe. In fact, if you do both, you get an even greater risk than if you were to add up the two separately. So now you have 10 times risk of COPD if you're both a water pipe smoker and a cigarette smoker. Dr. El Zatari from Beirut has uh, outlined all of the dangerous effects of water pipe tobacco smoking, acute effects and long-term effects, uh, and they are substantial. So about 10 years ago, we were at where we are now with MedWalk, but we've made rapid progress in understanding the effects of tobacco smoking using a water pipe because we brought together uh, a transdisciplinary group who worked together to understand each other and to understand a growing problem. We learned that water pipe use behavior is different from cigarette smokers, that water pipe users are exposed to nicotine, carbon monoxide, and other toxicants, and that water pipe use is associated with adverse health consequences. I would argue if we want to ask these similar questions about MedWalk or DOHA, we need to use a similar approach, and I think that uh, you're ideally positioned here at NYU Abu Dhabi to do that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Rima Afifi, 
who is a professor of, uh, in the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. Up until recently, she was at the American University of Beirut. So welcome, Dr. Afifi. Um, so I'm going to be following on uh, Dr. Eisenberg's um, talk, and it's always hard to go after him because he's so succinct and um, clear in what he says, so I'm going to try to be as succinct and as clear. And I'm again going to be talking about how we've used um, different methods than um, what Dr. Eisenberg has used to understand the water pipe with the idea that these are the, also the types of methods that we need to use to understand more about midwech um, uh, smoking. So my take-home message is that in order to develop effective programs that prevent and control use of a particular tobacco product, in this instance I'll be talking about water pipe, but uh, in the instance of midwech, it would be the same for midwech, we need to understand the factors that drive the use of that product at various levels of influence, and that those factors actually differ by product, so that what we found out from studying the water pipe is that it was different from what we knew before, which was we had lots of information about cigarettes, and that our assumption is by studying the midwech, we're also going to find out that that's different than the water pipe or cigarette, and that's why it's important to do these studies. Um, all right, so what do I mean when I talk about different levels of influence? So we take a little bit of a different approach. We actually use a lot of the data, data that's provided by the studies that Dr. Eisenberg has um, suggested and um, the evidence that they bring out from the lab. And we, uh, we use it to try to find out more about that through using different methods with uh, groups of people that are either smokers or non-smokers. Our, our premise is that there are a variety of factors that influence the use of any product or that influence behavior in general, and that those factors are not only within the individual, that they span the interpersonal level, which means friends, family, doctors, teachers, schools, etc. The organizational level, so where are the formal and informal organizations that um, interact with people in, uh, in uh, supporting or in, so in facilitating a behavior or not facilitating behavior, including the healthcare setting, including schools, including universities, NGOs, um, you know, and various other organizations. The community level, which is all the sort of social norms and community norms and mass media around us. And finally, the policy level, which is what are the regulations that either support uh, use or detract from use. And the premise is that we actually have to interact at all these levels if we're going to support uh, people in behavior change. So in other words, uh, we have to create a healthy environment uh, to support people in their behavior change. And so I'm going to take uh, us through what we've done with the water pipe in those various areas to help us think through what we might need to do in Medouach. Now, at all of these ecological levels, we actually rely on a variety of methods, including qualitative methods and quantitative methods, as well as mixed methods, so mixing qualitative and quantitative. And we also use a multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach, and wherever possible, our participatory approach, which means engaging those that are using um, in sort of thinking through what the issue is and what the solutions are to this issue. All right, so at the intrapersonal level, what are some of the things that we think about? So the intrapersonal level is what we usually call um, knowledge, attitude, uh, practice, and behavior um, surveys or studies, often known as CAB, for those of you that work in public health. And I'll start with behavior. So why we first got started to get interested in water pipe and also why we're now interested in Medouer, is often we start off with sort of these qualitative 
observations that there's an increase in use of a particular product. And that gets us thinking about you know, how much, who, why, when, what's happening here. And so we often move from those obser observations to epidemiological studies that then investigate person, place, time, and interaction with other products. So for example, in the water pipe, what we found is that the epidemic seems to have started in the 1990s. And I'm gonna skip here for a moment and take you to this graph that basically shows on the top that for every cohort, for any age cohort, the water pipe seems to be increasing at, at the same, you know, in the 90s for everybody. Whereas the bottom level, which is the cigarette, you'll see the typical effect, which is that different cohorts start at different times. So this suggests that there was a timing in which water pipe all of a sudden started increasing. And perhaps this is the, what's now happening with Midwest, is that increasing everywhere for lots of people right around the, you know, the 2010s, basically. Um, I'm going to go back for a moment. Oops. All right, so that was the, the, the beginning of our thinking around what is the time of the epidemic. The place, we started to find out that although we thought it was sort of an Arab world phenomenon, in fact, this was happening all over the world. So that there were studies coming out from the, from the UK, from the US, from India, from every region in the Arab, from every country in the Arab world, and there were a lot of cross-country cross comparisons. So for example, um, Hamad Jawad and his group looked at the Global Youth Tobacco Survey and found out that in a variety, um, in 15 of the EMR countries, and 15 countries in Eastern Europe, there was young people, 13 to 15, using the water pipe. And, um, and Morton um, et al. looked at the global, uh, the global um, adult uh, uh, tobacco survey and also found out that um, there are a whole variety of uh, countries that are also uh, where health professionals are using um, uh, water pipe. In terms of person, so who is it that's actually using the water pipe? There were different profiles in different countries, but in general, it looked like youth that youth were increasing youth were increasing use a lot. And in the Eastern Mediterranean region, it looked like, or in the Arab world, it looked like women were also smoking more, which is very different from the cigarettes. So all of these patterns we were starting to learn about um, from doing these epidemiological studies that came out of the observational studies. And then we also looked at interactions, and it looked like there was a lot of interaction between water pipe and other types of um, uh, smoking. So in fact, for many young people, water pipe was, was surpassing young people in our region, water pipe was surpassing cigarettes as the, the most uh, preferred form of tobacco smoking. And even in the US, before e-cigs before e came on, it was the second most um, smoked tobacco product among um, high school students and university students. So clearly, a lot of use, um, and uh, particularly with young people. So now we've established that there's a behavioral issue. Um, it's time to think about what are the determinants of that use. And for here, when we think about determinants, we think about, all right, what do we have from evidence of sim similar products? So what do we know about cigarettes and the determinants of cigarettes? But also, what do we know about the theories that drive behavior change and behavior? And some of the things that we know is that knowledge and attitude at the intrapersonal level, inside me, inside an individual, are important. Now, we can explore knowledge and attitude in a variety of ways, and I'll come back to how we use the data um, that Dr. Eisenberg ex uh, showed to, to explore knowledge and attitude, but we can also explore knowledge and attitude through qualitative methods. And at the early um, stages of an epidemic, it's often these types of methods that will give us in-depth information about what's happening, um, why people are, are smoking a particular product, why it's appealing, what are the facilitators of that smoke, et cetera. And so we um, actually conducted 25 focus group discussions 
sessions and nine interviews in Lebanon and came out with a whole variety of themes about the availability, that they can find it everywhere, that it's affordable, it's very cheap, that there's all these innovations that are happening, like putting the water in, um, in fruit, you know, like in a pineapple, or, and that's how they were smoking it, or creating special water pipe containers that were particularly targeted at women that had flowers all over them. We found out a lot about the influence of media and how this is marketed, about the lack of a policy framework. So our, our participants in the focus groups were telling us, well, it seems to be okay because the Ministry of Health is not saying anything about it, and about the sensory characteristics of this particular product. So the fact that people enjoy the smell, they love hearing the bubbles, they love seeing the smoke. So all of that's very different from cigarettes. And we would not have known that just from the lab studies. We needed to, to find out from people very much in depth. Those 25 focus groups in Lebanon were part of a much larger study where we collected 81 focus groups and 38 interviews in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt. And 10 themes emerged from there, including the, the sociocultural norms that are very common, that this is something that's accepted, that it looks different for men and women, and that differs by country, why people choose to smoke. Again, the sensory characteristics came up, and you can see the rest. So a lot of sort of in-depth um, uh, information, and I'll show you some quotes in a little while. But knowledge and attitude from the lab studies help us also develop quantitative methods and survey items so we can then sort of say, test people's knowledge. Do you know, do you know that water pipe um, um, uh, smoke contains nicotine? Or do you know that um, you can get addicted to water pipe from, um, uh, to nicotine from smoking the water pipe? Those things that the lab studies are telling us can be used um, in surveys to understand um, uh, knowledge and attitude. And also, we can use the qualitative studies to also create knowledge and attitude questions. So for example, the issue of the fact that people used to think that the water filtrated out the harms of water pipe smoking came from our in-depth interviews. We would never have gotten that from the lab studies. We needed the qualitative data to show us that particular attitude. The issue that um, people think it's safer because it's, the, the, there's fruit flavors or it's fruity. Again, that wouldn't have come out from the lab. We had to find that out from qualitative data. So the, the, you know, the, the working with both those or all those data, um, data methods helps us understand use. So here are some of the quotes that we, um, that we uh, found from these um, qualitative. Uh, so on availability. An emerging fad. 10 years ago, we weren't used to seeing water pipes. Nowadays, the first thing you people ask about when entering a restaurant, do you have a water pipe? The water pipe is fundamental for everything. The restaurant is doing well because it has water pipes. The evening is going well because the water pipe is available. In every place, there's a water pipe, in every setting. Here's on attitudes. At a certain age, young boys would be tempted to smoke to feel more manly. So that, that's an easy item that we can put within a survey. Okay? Do you smoke water pipe? Or to what extent do you feel like uh, you, you feel more manly if you smoke a water pipe? Another attitude. Water pipe smoking is a way to ease the stress. So again, you can take from this and create a survey item about whether or not people feel like it eases stress. Sensory characteristics. The sound of bubbling water is comforting. Its smell is fruity. And the gathering is for two to three hours. Such a gathering is a combination of all the factors, the sound, the smell, the taste, all the senses. I mean, you can just get the sense of what an experience this is to people. Okay, it's much different from the cigarette. So even they are telling us it's different from the cigarette. And again, the smoke itself plays an important role. If you ask a person to smoke in a totally dark room, he doesn't feel the same pleasure as smoking cigarettes or, or smoking water pipe in a place where he can see the smoke rising in front of him with all its movement. So it's, it's like a personal relationship with the smoke or other parts of the water pipe. All right. 
So on to the interpersonal level. What do we know about the influence of the environment um, on, uh, on people's smoking behavior? So we know very well from cigarettes that um, there's a huge influence of family, friends, teachers, those people that are in our close interpersonal circles. And that water pipe particularly, and very differently from cigarettes, has a very social aspect to it. This is not something, it's rarely something that you do alone. You've got to be pretty addicted to smoke water pipe by yourself. You usually smoke it with your friends. And um, we, we have this information from a bunch of quantitative um, surveys that we've done where we found that people first try the water pipe with family. Nobody or very few people ever try cigarettes for the first time with their families. This is not something that your parents are giving you. But water pipe is something that people do in families. We found out that parental smoking, parent attitudes, parent knowledge is associated with water pipe use in adolescents, and it's in, uh, associated with intentions to smoke. And those were through quantitative surveys that we conducted. And we found out that peer smoking and peer encouragement to use also is associated with water pipe smoking among young people. We also found this out from our qualitative research and the quotes. So, now my father's enjoying smoking water pipe with me. Every night he prepares his water pipe and asks me, don't you want to prepare your own? If a father is a smoker, he would indulge his children. He would tell them, smoke a water pipe, try a puff. This way the children would become addicted to water pipe. I go out with my friends and all of them are smoking water pipe. How can I not smoke? They're gonna belittle me. So again, these quotes are also giving us information about um, you know, the, the interpersonal uh, issues that are, are driving water pipe use. The third level is organizational. Now, in the organizational, there's, a, there's like I said, a bunch of aspects that we might want to look at. I'm going to just talk about three. Um, we just very recently in Lebanon passed, uh, well, I guess it's now six years, but this happened before the six years. Six years ago, we passed uh, our first tobacco control law in Lebanon, Law 174. But we did this research before that law was passed, um, and we were, when we found out that there were some restaurants um, and some sort of hospital hotels that had voluntarily decided to become smoke-free. So at that point, it's organizational, not policy. Once you have a law, it's a policy aspect. But at this point, it was an organizational um, aspect. And we wanted to talk to them about what were the factors that facilitated that move? Why did they decide to make that move? Because we thought that would give us information to help support the push for a law. And so they talked to us a lot about the reasons for implementing a smoke-free policy and some of the things that they said that it was more hygienic. If you don't have smoke, it's more hygienic. Even for restaurants, you just it's a cleaner, the, the food is cleaner, the restaurant cleans, uh, seems cleaner, and that some of them were just following international standards, particularly if they were international chains. We found out that the biggest barrier to that and the struggles that they had were people saying, it's an infringement on the right of smokers. Now, this is very interesting because you don't hear about the infringement on the right of non-smokers. Okay? You hear about the infringement on the right of smokers. They said that the facilitators to this decision, to the voluntary decision, was that they really believed in having a healthier environment, but that management support was critical. So again, this gives us a point for intervention or a point that we need to think about once the law is passed, that we need to work with managers to have them be supportive. Managers that were supportive um, were able to keep to smoke-free places, managers that, won't, that weren't, didn't. We found this also in schools. So even when, the, when there was a law that prohibited smoking on school, in school, on school premises, principals that were supportive of that would make sure that there was no smoking in schools, but principals that weren't um, let smoking happen. And in fact, we have incidences where students would go on school trips and they would be offered ergile on the school trip. Okay, so it was just part of, uh, part of what... All right, and then in terms of enforcement and compliance, we found out that the enforcement and compliance was very difficult because of a general disregard that people have for laws and policies. We just don't follow laws, basically. 
Um, we also looked then at a different organizational setting, which is health professions curriculum. So you, one would think that tobacco ought to be in the curricula of medical schools, in the curricula of nursing schools, in the curricula of public health schools, at least health professional schools. And we found out that, in fact, they aren't covered hardly at all, so that's a point of potential intervention. And we looked at, within the healthcare setting, the availability of clinical prompts. So are physicians asking people whether or not they use water pipe, because that's the first point of potential intervention, and again, found very little clinical prompts. Okay, when I say we, it's everybody that's working in this area, not just me and my team, and as you see from the authors. The fourth level is community, and because of time, I'm actually not going to go into community, although it's very interesting, only to say that social norms accepting the, uh, the use of water pipe is what really, really drives this epidemic. And in, in order to, to control the epidemic, we're really going to have to change the social norms around it. I am going to focus on policy and talk about two things, the perceptions about the need for policy, and I'm going to go back to our quotes, and then sort of some analysis that we've done on policy that also support um, uh, the need to, to work on the policy. So uh, when I talk policy, we talk about taxation. For the, the policies that one thinks about in relation to tobacco control are the policies that are in the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control, which is the first global health treaty ever, and sort of puts out those evidence-based policies that are critical to control and prevent tobacco use. One of them is taxation, because we know that it, the higher the price of any tobacco product, the less people will use it. And so our, uh, our participants in the, quote, uh, in the focus group told us, well, we can order it twice, three times sharing. It's, it's only 10,000 liras, which is, uh, which is about $7 um, or less even. And we're three or four people. So approximately 2,000 or like a dollar, a dollar and a quarter per person. And that's very affordable. Okay, so we know that they're telling us it's affordable. And if you want to control it, you need to control the cost. Um, well, another policy is banning advertisement, all forms of advertising. And our participants said, what do the media do? They make you want to try everything. Everything they knew, uh, uh, everything new they advertise, they tempt you with the design. So the whole aspect of the media and how they tempt you and the importance of controlling advertisement. Another policy is ban on smoking in public places. And so, again, our participants said, a law that bans water pipes in all restaurants, we're talking about a national law. Very few people buy water pipe and prepare it at home. Very few are so addicted to water pipe smoking that they would smoke it at home. So banning water pipe in public places can significantly decrease high levels of addiction. So these are our participants urging government to ban um, smoking in public places. And on health warnings, which is another um, uh, FCTC policy, even the Ministry of Health, although they put out a health warning on cigarette packs mentions nothing on water pipe tobacco smoking. Although water pipe smoking on a daily basis is more harmful than cigarette smoking. So the fact that the Ministry of Health isn't saying anything, then people are not going to pay paying attention. So participants are saying we need to have regulation. We then went to assessing particular aspects of the policy, again, using sort of the FCTC as a guide. Um, and so most of the FCTC and the laws that are at country level talk about tobacco in general, but they're mostly focused on cigarettes. So although they say it covers all tobacco products, the, the, the point is that different tobacco products like the water pipe or midwech are different than cigarettes and need special policies. So for example, we found out that water pipe tobacco is taxed at a lower rate this, even if the taxation is set at a particular rate by the government, it's taxed at a lower rate compared to cigarette. And the difference with water pipe, and also midwech, is it's not just about, it's cigarette, everything, the tobacco and the 
and the, I mean, it's just one piece. Whereas water pipe, you have the tobacco, you have the charcoal, you have the, um, the hose, you have the, there's a whole bunch of accessories that are linked to, the, to water pipe. You cannot just focus on the water pipe tobacco. And so all of those, those devices, all the charcoal, those aren't taxed, all right? that water pipe bars actually in the United States are claiming exemptions from indoor clear air legislation. And that's, it was through a loophole that, that they, they hadn't thought to cover um, water, pipe, uh, uh, water pipe bars. And that there's a whole bunch of misleading warnings as Dr. Eisenberg showed you. So um, on water pipe tobacco packs and accessories, for example, water pipe, uh, when there are warnings on the water pipe packs, they cover 3.5% of the total surface area, which is minimal. Right. The FCTC encourages at least 30% and up to 50%. There's misleading descriptors. So if you buy a filter, it will say protect your health while enjoying the water pipe. That's ridiculous. Um, and we found out that the nicotine labeling on the packs is completely unrelated to the nicotine delivery. So as, as Dr. Eisenberg showed you, it says 0.05% nicotine, but then if you take nicotine plasma, you, found it, you find it much, much higher. In a review of regulations in seven countries around the world, India and Pakistan had the most effective regulations to control water pipe smoking specifically. So they actually had regulations that said something about the water pipe. In an indoor, in an analysis availability of clean air regulations in the US, only 4% of 100 of the largest cities in the US had clear policies for water pipe. All the others are just in general. And so if you put things together, there's this very interesting economic method called discrete choice experiments, where participants are given choices, and then they decide. So if you had a water pipe at this price, um, with this much nicotine, in this restaurant, you know, and then another water pipe at this price, which one would you pick? And it gives us a lot of information about uh, use patterns. They were actually averse to options that were labeled with high, higher nicotine content. And I'll show you an example in a moment. And if they were exposed to a health warning, they were likely not to choose to smoke water pipe at all, so that we know that these types of policies actually work. And we know very little about economics of, uh, the economics of water pipe tobacco smoking. So this is one of the menus that was in the discrete choice experiment. So people would get choices between double apple, blue mist, pirate's cave, non-flavored, and you see that it says 0.05% um, nicotine, 0.00, um, 0 0.0, 0 0.5, so it's differing in nicotine level, and you see at the bottom the warning. Some of the menus had warnings, some of the menus didn't. And so whenever there was a warning, most people chose not to smoke at all. But when there was a warning, even when there was a warning, they, they would choose those, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, the flavor that had the lowest nicotine. So suggesting that if we can do this, this very simple intervention, it can actually control use. So why is all this important uh, information important? And how does it inform intervention? And why can't we just know, uh, use what we know from cigarettes? Well, the last question is easy, because this is a very different product. Okay? And all of this information is very important to develop prevention interventions. So for example, it helps us to tackle mis misperceptions. We never would have thought about water filtration if we hadn't done this kind of research. It makes us think that perhaps, since people are first starting to use with their families. We need to not only do interventions for young people, but interventions for parents, which again, we wouldn't think about for cigarettes. And since we seem to be at least successful somewhat in cigarette tobacco smoking, in that at least in some, region, in some countries of our region, cigarettes are going down for young people, perhaps we need to start comparing water pipe to cigarettes to get the same effect for water pipe. 
in terms of cessation interventions, what this information is telling us is that the group aspect of water pipes is really important. People smoke it in a group. So you need to change the way we do cessation from cigarettes, which is mostly an individual product, and that this idea of visual, olfactory, auditory aspect really needs to be tackled in cessation interventions, which we never would have thought about in, um, uh, in cigarettes. And in terms of policy recommendations, we need to focus on the fact that we need very specific water pipe policies um, for, for the, for, uh, for those policies covered by the FCTC and to include the accessories, not only the tobacco. So again, the take hope message, which I started with, in order to develop, to develop effective programs that prevent or control use of a particular tobacco product, we need to understand what factors drive use of that product at all of the ecological levels. And just focusing on in the individual level is not enough to create environments that are conducive to health that these factors might differ by, may differ by product, and as, as I've shown, they differed a lot between the water pipe and the cigarette, and so we have to conduct research for each tobacco product, and that we need to consider these methods to continue building evidence from Edouard and strengthen our understanding of this phenomenon and therefore our capacity to develop interventions and policies. Thank you. At this point, I'm going to have all four of our panelists and discussants come up, and uh, I'm going to ask our, our two discussants to each spend a few minutes uh, sharing their experience on Doha or Midwach. Uh, first will be Dr. Mohammed Al-Hukani, who's a professor at UAE University and a physician in internal medicine and pulmonary medicine, and then Dr. Michael Weitzman, who's a professor of pediatrics and environmental health at New York University. Okay. Oh, great. Oh, no, it's well, okay, it's a panel. Sure. So it's supposed to be a panel discussion. You're free to ask any questions about Medwach, and I'm pretty sure many of you have seen Medwach before. Uh, does anyone have a Medwach in his pocket? <laughs> have you ever seen Medwach and how it looks like? If not, I can just get you a photo of Midwach and start describing it. Seriously, can we get? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So Midwach is basically, the names comes, well, Midwach was, let's call it Arabic pipes. And you'll see it in a minute. It's a, it's a pipes that made mo most of the time of food, and it comes with a pulse that takes a dry tobacco of around less than 0.5 gram. The dry tobacco, we call it doha. And the word doha in Arabic means dizziness or vertigo. And people smoke midwach here for a long time ago. But the prevalence, we don't know. I could tell you that it was not very common and, uh, to smoke within the culture of UAE. I heard many stories of people who smoked a long time ago and ended up in a jail because it was not accepted here in this region to smoke cigarettes. The only people who were smoking at that time were the British soldiers who brought cigarettes to the area. We, were, we had nothing like 40 or 50 years ago. Some people grew tobacco leaves aside the east of the Gulf, 
uh, Gulf of, of, of Oman, and they bring the dried tobacco leaves, blend it, and add it to this midwach, which is the pipe, and smoke it. What is interesting about the midwach is you burn it, and it's two puffs, maximum maybe three puffs, and it gives the smoker the buzz, the feeling of the nicotine. So it becomes sort of popular among adults. You see different type of midwife here. Uh, for many reasons, one of them is not expensive to buy the doha, not regulated. You could go to any of the tobacco shops and buy the dry tobacco, which we call it doha, and it costs like something around three or four dirham. Uh, there's no labels on it. Uh, the midwife itself, it, the regular one is not expensive. There's, there's a pink one with this uh, crystals for, for hair. There's for him also. There's a Maybach brand as well. So becoming sort of popular, and people think it's part of the bride of UAE or traditional of UAE. You see them smoking the, the tobacco, the midwak all the time. And when you hear this on a traffic light, they're cleaning <laughs> the pipe and adding a, a dry tobacco. Now, what, what makes me interesting in this is the first survey that I worked with Health Authority of Abu Dhabi, who did the Wikaya database, which is the largest cardiovascular survey. They were screening all the UAE national for cardiovascular risk factors. And one of the questions were related to smoking. And I took that data and started to analyze, and I found that the second most popular tobacco product in UAE is midwah. So I said, oh, well, do we have anything on the literature on midwah? And at that time, was almost nothing. So I went, start to search, went to the tobacco shops, took photos, and asked questions, and got the doha, and start to measure how much it, it takes, and ask people who use the midwah. Uh, so 15% of the smokers within the UAE smoking midwah is a lot. And, and, it, and then further study came after where we saw the trend is going up. One study among uh, premarital uh, screening uh, done, and I see here Dr. Amar Shafi in Abu Dhabi, and they found 12% of adult UAE national are smoking midwah. Now, searching on the net, we found that people smoking midwah not only in the UAE, but there are e-shops selling midwah across the globe in the US, in California. So it seems that it's a trend, and the prevalence is increasing day by day. So we're here getting together to learn from the experts and from the experience of other people who find out well, the effect, the harmful effect of water pipes, the cigarettes, and we try to learn it on, on midwach smoking. Now, is midwach harmful? I would say yes, for sure. We do have some evidence of the acute effects of midwife smoking. Uh, the heart rates and the, the blood pressure goes up by 20 millimeter of mercury with, with almost one course, which is three buffs of, of midwife smoking. And recently, we got an article by Dr. Yahya Sayed. Is he here? 
yes, who chemically analyzed the DOHA and found at least three carcinogenic uh, uh, chemicals and maybe 22 irritants within the DOHA. So there, we're starting to get more evidence on every day on how bad is the DOHA. And we're here actually to educate and sending a message to everyone that be careful. It's not organic, and it's not healthy. And it's not part of our culture. And I'm saying not part of our culture, because if you look at the prevalence of midwife smoking among UAE, the most popular age group who smoke it is between 20 and 30. The, other, the second most common are 30 to 40. And rarely to find people who smoke midwife uh, on the age between 50 and 60. So it's not really popular in the old days in here, and it's a trend among the young generation. Uh, that's my part, and I'll move the mic to uh, Michael. Thank you very much. So William Harvey is the person who discovered the uh, physical functions of the human heart. And he pointed out that anything that we know is infinitely less than what we don't know. And so we don't know a great deal about Midwalk, but we know a great deal about tobacco and about cigarettes. So cigarettes, whether you know it or not, is entirely man-made, is a 20th century epidemic. In the year 1900, 2% of the world's population smoked cigarettes, or the developed world uh, smoked cigarettes. By 1950, it was 46% of all people uh, in the developed world, or the economically more privileged world, were cigarette smokers. Um, epidemics spread uh, very, very rapidly. Um, and we have every reason to believe that they're going to spread more quickly at this point because the world is much smaller and it's much easier to transmit things from one place to another. So we've heard a number of things about water pipes, about advertising. So I suggest that you all look up the name Edward Bernays because that's perhaps the most evil person of the 20th century. He's the father of advertising and Philip Morris was his first uh, client. Um, then he moved on to craft uh, um, um, foods, but that's a whole other story. But advertising and subliminal seduction of uh, youth are key to uptake of these sorts of products. I searched the web today, and um, to date, I can't find advertisements that use the same approaches that water pipes use and uh, were used for cigarettes before that. Um, cigarettes are a consequence of a perfect storm. And perhaps we have the same storm brewing here right now. That is that um, there was the discovery in 1884 of um, the TB bacillus by Robert Koch, so limited spitting in public. And so you needed another vehicle for delivering tobacco. A pediatrician named David Kessler, 100 years later, had a profound epiphany. 
He was the head of the FDA, and he defined cigarettes as a nicotine delivery system, right? So in addition to changing social norms by advertising and by uh, what peer influence, um, we haven't spoken as yet about the drug um, addiction part of um, tobacco products. And we have every reason to believe that uh, Midwalk actually delivers more nicotine, or certainly as much nicotine, as does uh, cigarettes. But cigarettes, or t nicotine, is probably the perfect gateway drug. You probably don't know this, but in individuals, certainly there are a number of animal models, to show that prenatal exposure to nicotine enhances your likelihood not only of becoming a smoker, but of becoming addicted to cocaine or to heroin. And it makes it more difficult to be able to kick those habits. So you have here what we believe is a regional problem. Although I don't even believe that we have the data to say that that's the case. While we were at the meeting earlier today, I looked and every single country that I could type in Midwalk and the name of that country, there were lists of stores and um, um, ways to buy on the web, um, Midwalk, Doka and Midwalk. So you have a, a chance here to stem uh, a rapidly uh, increasing epidemic that's local and that we have every reason to believe is uh, international or has international potential. And we really know very, very little about this. And uh, I just want to end by pointing out that um, cigarettes are the leading preventable cause of death in the world right now, more than causing more deaths than HIV, uh, TB, uh, and malaria combined. Also, I'm a pediatrician, and I think of tobacco as much as a children's issue as I think of it as an adult issue. I started off this morning by introducing myself to the other participants by pointing out that I was the token pediatrician. But we then spent the entire day without using the word child, but virtually all the data that was presented related to uptake and use of Midwalk by young individuals. Uh, the average age of beginning to use cigarettes is about 11 or 12 in the United States. That's the average age. So you're talking about something that really is child-related. And you have a great opportunity here to improve not just knowledge about a particular product that affects the health of the public here, but that probably has global implications. And so this is a wonderful opportunity to deal with one of the worst things that human beings have ever created. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.